On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. This weekend marks the anniversary of the birth of Israel, the state formed in May 1948. Now, Irish interactions with the Israeli state have been sometimes surprising, but you might also be surprised about the extent of Irish influence on that state because Irish nationalism was really finding its voice in the early 20th century and it was really beginning to make its presence felt on some of the other questions around the world. And from the black and tans to the questions of partition on this island, there was an awful lot in the story of mandatory Palestine, as it was called then, which did interest Irish opinion. And Donald Fallon has been going back over the records to give us a, a briefing up to it. Uh, Donald, you're not with us in the studio today and we'll explain why maybe uh, in a couple of minutes time but we do have you on a good solid line. Um, the former empire uh, was shifting in a lot of places in 1948 including here. Yeah, what a year. I mean, for us, it was a very significant year. The, the Republic of Ireland Act 1948 ended the kind of symbolic ties between us and empire. Uh, I always loved that, you know, Dev was asked in 1945 if he would declare a republic and he replied, we are a republic. <laughs> maybe, maybe mm, he wished we were. You can't, you can't wish, you can't wish a republic into being. You know, we we weren't. The fact is, we weren't. Not yet. It was 1948. It was a different government who would, I suppose you might might say they outdevved Dev. You know, and they mm. and they made it a reality. The, the inter-party government, but internationally, it was. A, I suppose it was a curious year for the empire in different places too. Uh, it included the birth of what we now know as the state of Israel, and that story, us and Israel. It's a very surprising journey. It's a tale with some unexpected crossover of characters. Uh, I mean, the black and tans come into this story today, which is incredible. And, you know, until the British withdrawal of the 1940s, uh, there were some people whose lives had taken them literally from, you know, West Cork in the War of Independence uh, to policing this curious land that was known at the time, as you say, as mandatory Palestine. So, yeah, in the 1930s, you know, much of what Ireland said uh, on that region was very widely reported. The dreaded P word was up there, wasn't it? It was looming around. And that word, of course, was partition. Okay. I was worried that you were going to say some other P word there. And I was like, this is a family show. Go on, book up. Um, for, for people who aren't uh, as familiar with the, the whole history of, of the Middle East and how it came to be in the, in the present day circumstances, you might explain exactly how the British had ended up being involved there in the first place and what was the logic of their presence. Well, it's, yeah, British foreign policy, a series of unfortunate events. But you know, in, in many ways, we live in a world that is even now greater shaped, I would say, by the First World War than any other event. You know, from the First World War flow revolutions, new states, new political realities, and so much of, of the trauma of the 20th century and even the early 21st century is shaped by the First World War. But I mean, for Britain, I suppose they end up in interesting places. Mesopotamia, modern day Iraq uh, and Palestine are kind of British conquests from the Ottoman Empire. Uh, during the course okay. uh, of the war. And I mean, listeners might be asking a very good question. Why be there? What was it about that place? Why why would you be there? Sean Gannon has written a lot on the history of policing Palestine. He makes the point that, you know, Britain believed that control of Mesopotamia and Palestine would provide it with a territorial buffer zone, protecting imperial strategic and commercial interests like the Suez, Suez Canal from feared Russian regional uh, expansion. So, you know, the world is really up for grabs, you might say, in, the, in, in this period around the First World War, uh, and Britain finds itself finds itself here. So Britain finds itself then moving into the Middle East because it's worried that if it doesn't, Russia might anyway. This it's, it's amazing how you can never get away from some of the modern day parallels, really, isn't there, that people fear this, about Russia just expanding its empire from, from one territory to another. Really remarkable stuff. Um, geographic political chess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, people, some people said you could say the same about Afghanistan. I remember someone saying before that his country was basically the chessboard of the the empires of the world. Um, they had uh, as early as nineteen seventeen, they being Britain, um, had publicly committed themselves to the idea of creating something of a Jewish state. 
Yeah, they publicly stated that the Balfour Declaration uh, a support for what they called a national home for the Jewish people. And I think, to be honest, that was probably a promise that they would come to regret making because they found themselves entangled in a lot of things, you know, in the aftermath of that in, in, in 1917. And there was Arab opposition, I suppose, to this idea that would grow throughout the 1920s. But, you know, one crisis, as is often the case for, for an empire, one crisis ends just on time uh, for another. And, and Sean Gannon writes of this. He writes that on the, on the 30th of April, 1922, 760 recently disbanded members of the Royal Irish Constabulary and its auxiliary division disembarked at Haifa in Palestine. In other words... Sorry, the auxiliaries. Hands, the auxiliaries went, ended up in Haifa. The auxiliaries... The auxiliaries who had gone literally in a matter of weeks, you know, from from policing rural Ireland to finding themselves uh, in in Palestine. And there's a lovely a lovely line Sean digs out. The High Commissioner in Palestine writes to Winston Churchill and basically says, "We need to keep this quiet. Their reputation as a corps has not been savoury." And if any idea was created in the public mind in England or here that the blackened hands or any part of them were being transferred as a body to Palestine, the new police might be discredited from the outset. So isn't it remarkable to, to, to imagine this force who had been so deeply entangled in revolution or counter-revolution in Ireland, we might say, thrown into the mix in Palestine? Uh, I, I had no idea that was the case. And I just, I, my mind is blown that the black and tans went straight from here to there. Uh, you, and you might say out of the frying pan and into the fire, but was it a fire so much at the time? Or did, did the old timers, did they have as, as hard time a job in Palestine as they did in Ireland? Actually, the impression I get is that it was a it was a pretty nice retirement, to be honest. It was an easier okay. job, and for the most part, they they were kind of a peacekeeping force. Gannon makes the point that the violence there was kind of largely between Arab and Jewish communities, and it wasn't really directed at the kind of you know imperial rule that they upheld. So they were mostly a, a middleman, and maybe Palestine after West Cork. Yeah, it sounds like a kind of happy retirement. You know, you were no longer coming under sustained attack uh, in the way you had been uh, in Ireland. But then when Zionism does come to the fore militarily, and when the when the conflict does begin, really with, with the British, the armed conflict, they take a lot of inspiration from what's happened uh, in Ireland. I mean, one Zionist tells a, a courtroom, uh, he talks about the British uh, accused of drowning the Irish uprising in rivers of blood, yet Ireland rose free uh, in spite of you. And then there's this character, this fascinating guy, Zeev uh, Jap Jap Japodinsky, he's one of the leading Zionist voices of the 30s and 40s. He actually comes to Ireland in 1938, meets De Valera, which is extraordinary. Hmm. But Dev kind of has his own opinions. He, he told the League of Nations the previous year about Palestine. He said, you know, whatever the answer is in Palestine, it isn't partition. He says, that's the cruelest wrong that could be done uh, to any people. So that's the voice of experience speaking there. Zionist Devil militias who, yeah, there's, there's armed Zionist militias who, who kind of take inspiration from armed Irish separatism. But it's very clear that Irish separatists don't, don't really know how to feel about them. And MI5 is kind of worried, is there something going on between these kind of you know, Zionist militias and, and Irish republicanism? But ultimately, there isn't really all that much going on there. Um, in the end, the nature in which the Israeli state was born and it was out of partition along British lines, it didn't endear it to too many political voices in this part of the world. Yeah, and I think whatever kind of little sympathy that might have been before, you know, when the state is born, Rory Miller has written a lot on, on, on the state of Israel and how it was born and its relationship with Ireland. The way he writes about it, it's great. He says, once the Zionist movement accepted the partition of Palestine, the Irish began to draw unflattering parallels between Israeli policies and their own divided existence. To many, the Jewish state now looked less like a besieged religious national community struggling valiantly and more like a colony illegitimately established by British force of arms. So it 
okay. it didn't endear itself, you might say, to the vision, the world vision of people like De Valera. And I don't think it helped either that some who are loyal to the, the project, they spoke about it. I mean, this is this is an incredible way of describing Israel. But, you know, one loyal to the project says it's a little loyal Jewish Ulster in a sea of potentially hostile Arabism. I mean, that wasn't the kind of language that was going to endear you to, to no, Irish nationalists. But, but it, it, it's remarkable, actually, because like for, for those who, who weren't familiar with, with how the, the current state of affairs came into being, the idea that uh, there was once upon a time maybe this natural affinity between the Irish rebels and the Zionists and how then the, the nature in which the, the Israeli state came into being completely undermines that is, is kind of fascinating. Um, there were some in this new state, though, who did have a fairly intimate knowledge of Ireland, uh, including someone who went on to become its president. Yeah, one, one who knew Ireland well was the, the former chief rabbi of Ireland, Herzog, uh, known affectionately in his day as the Sinn Féin rabbi. Isn't that fantastic? He'd been a supporter <laughs> for first all. Uh, he'd, he'd really backed the, the revolutionary forces during the War of Independence, the Sinn Féin rabbi. His family had emigrated in the 1930s to, to what was still mandatory Palestine. But his son went on to become the sixth president of Israel, which is amazing. So he's, mm. he's the only president of Israel who was born in Belfast. And he's also the only Wesley College graduate to have held the office <laughs> of president of Israel. <laughs> Trail. I'm sure that the, you, you, what you'll find now is that there'll be <laughs> listeners of other South Dublin schools who'll be chiming in and saying, aha, well, how, how many Israeli presidents can we claim? And they'll find some way to go back through them there, all. There is a Herzog, there is a Herzog Park uh, in Rakar named in his honour and, and, and a plaque in what was once called a Little Jerusalem, you know, that district around Portobello mm. and the South Circular Road. So, yeah, the Herzogs, they were a very influential family in, in, in Irish public life who, who went on to achieve the highest office of the land in, in Israel. Dev Allaire, actually, I didn't notice until, until I was researching this piece. Dev went to Israel in 1950 uh, and, you know, primarily not really to talk about the business of politics. He was on a kind of uh, a religious visit. He went to David's tomb. He went to Bethlehem. But he also met King Abdullah of Jordan while he was in that part of the world. So you know, Dev, very wisely, I suppose, he, he, he met people of very different opinion. Uh, but it's, it's funny, you know, Dev was someone who traveled the world on a great speaking tour talking about you know, denouncing partition just a few years before this. But he, he keeps very quiet when, he, when he's in Israel in 1950. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure he does. Um, in the end, Irish-Israeli relationships have been... Um... What's a generous word? Uh, they've been complex, to say the very least. <laughs> yeah, I mean that is one way that that is one way to put it. Definitely. I mean, you know, when the dust had settled, where where did Ireland stand? I mean, to have produced a president of a nation for an island as small as us is a, is a remarkable thing. But the the historic relationship has been a strange one. I mean, Frank Aiken. Uh, emerged as one of the most respected voices, I think, in on this question in the 1960s. Mm. Uh, he described the, the problem of Palestinian refugees as the greatest single obstacle to a lasting peace in the Middle East. And it's amazing when you look at people like Aiken, Dev, Lamas, these are aging revolutionaries. These were, you know, the, the, the young men of yesterday. But decades later, the 50s, the 60s, they're still capable of remaining in politics and they're really respected internationalists. And that generation, be it Dev, be it Lamas, uh, be it Aiken, you know, what they said on things like Israel-Palestine was always listened to. And as Aiken's biographer says, you know, his sympathy for the plight of the Palestinian refugees uh, was the result of Aiken's sincerely held belief that while Ireland lacked political and diplomatic influence over the parties in the conflict, it did have it did have an important, if not unique, moral contribution to make. You know, we've always played our mm. role there uh, in in, in terms of peacekeeping and in terms of in terms of all that. But it's a great story. And look, some will remember the words of, of Simon Coveney and the Dáil in, in very recent times when he spoke of de facto annexation. I mean, th they were words without precedent, not only in Ireland, uh, but but from an EU member state. So this story is still being written, you might say. But the, mm. the early days of it are, are certainly surprising. I mean, the black and tans in Palestine. Is a, is a remarkable forgotten part of, of history, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it really is. And again, just the way, when you see now the affinity that there is between um, 
Republicans north of the border and their support for the Palestinian cause but the idea that once upon a time there was an affinity between Irish rebels and the Zionists who were looking to try and establish their new own breakaway state as well until the circumstances under which it came into being it really is uh, remarkable stuff um, I said at the beginning that I'd mention why you're not with us do you, do you want to reveal to the listeners where exactly you are right now? Yeah I'm I'm underneath Hill 16 <laughs> <laughs> where, where, where are you buried there in the rubble of the rising or what's the, the going rubble, on the, yeah, one of those great urban myths the rubble of the 1916 rising Hill 60 as it was known once upon a time now we're filming the last bit of Brainstorm uh, which is a history of, of ladies Gaelic football and it's a great story actually how it eventually made its way to Croke Park and made its way to television so tomorrow we're back uh, on half eight on, on, on RT1 but we finish shooting it today which is nice in its own way There was a little bit of me that thought you might be queuing up early in Hill 16 for the Leinster <laughs> semi-final double bill later on to, to, to see Dublin <laughs> struggle mightily over the Royals as they almost certainly will uh, Donald Fallon is the presenter of Brainstorm where Monday evenings at half past eight uh, on RT1 he's also the author of the Community books and of Henrietta Street from Tenement to Suburbia which is about the modern history of Dublin City and he's also the presenter of the Three Castles Burning podcast about the history of Dublin as well On the Record with Gavin Riley, Brought to you by PwC Sunday morning at 11 on News Talk.